Matthew chapter 18, uh, Jesus made one of his most profound statements. If you remember the story of Matthew 18, Jesus is there and there's a bunch of little kids running around and the disciples are like, hey, send the kids away. Uh, send the kids to the back room where all the kids' ministry stuff is happening. And uh, Jesus is like, no, hold on. And he takes one of the kids and he scoops the kid up into his lap. And he makes this profound statement. He says, unless you become like one of these, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Now, honestly, when you hear that, doesn't being a kid sound great? Like, you think about kids and how carefree kids are. Like, kids are so carefree with just what's going on in the world and what's happening around them. In fact, when I was growing up, the neighborhood we played in, there was a couple of kids that were my age. And what we would do all the time is we would play cops and robbers in the neighborhood. So we'd run around chasing each other all through the neighborhood. And our biggest concern playing cops and robbers was whether old man Wilson would get mad at us for running through his backyard when we weren't supposed to. That was our biggest worry as a child growing up. How would you love to be that carefree where your biggest worry is, am I going to get caught running through the neighbor's yard? Think about this. Think about how carefree uh, childhood was. We didn't have much money growing up, but I didn't know that. In fact, I thought, uh, I thought when you have... I thought it was called helper because I didn't know until I got older that you're actually supposed to put the hamburger in the hamburger helper, and that makes it hamburger helper. It was just helper for us and our family. That was kind of the way it was. My mom, as I got older, shared how difficult those times were of, of trying to provide for us, and I'm like, I never knew it. I thought it was just the way it was. It was, it was wonderful. It wasn't something I, I worried about. In fact, I think about this. I think about when you're a child, how oftentimes as kids, you don't really concern yourself with what others think of you, Right? I mean, as adults, we worry about that. We worry about, well, what are people going to think about this or that? But as a child, you don't worry about those things. So I remember there was one year, uh, it was getting ready for school pictures. And I thought it was a really great idea because I've always loved Christmas. So I thought it was a really great idea to wear this um, sweatsuit, this sweatsuit that was Christmas colors. It was the bright green, the bright red. And, 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 I, and I remember this picture. I wish I could find it for you. I remember I didn't even comb my hair. So I'm taking this picture and is now enshrined in my family of me looking like I was a Christmas elf who forgot to comb his hair on that day. I still smiled from ear to ear. I thought it was the greatest thing. Think about what it would be like for us to be children again, to be that carefree. The key, the reason that Jesus says this to the disciples is unless you become like one of these children, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. The key to that is we need to have this childlike faith. We as, as adults sometimes struggle with this, but we need to have this childlike faith because what's incredible is, is, is kids have this ability to have this trust and this faith in things that are not seen, right? They have this, this faith in, in believing these things. When, when, when I was growing up, when my, my friends and I, when we weren't playing uh, cops and robbers in the neighbor's yard, we were in my friend Robbie's front yard. And I don't know why his parents let us do this, but we, we were digging a hole to China, we, we, were, we were digging a hole to China. We'd stop every like five minutes and be like, can you hear anything? Can you hear anything? And we were convinced that we were going to dig a hole to China. That is like this tremendous amount of faith in the unseen. Trust in the impossible. In fact, I just think about this. I think about how kids handle things like faith. I think about a, a kid when there's a sickness... A kid has every belief that God can heal the sickness. Why wouldn't they believe that God could do what he says he can do? Of course they're going to believe that. A kid will look and say, well, why do I have to be afraid? Because God gave me this promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you. 
And if God is always with me, I don't have to be afraid. Kids have no fear of dreaming for the unbelievable. That's why every little kid, what do they say they want to do when they grow up? A fireman, a policeman, a rescue hero, whatever it happens to be, because they have this tremendous faith in what cannot be seen. Because, of course, God is for us. But as we grow up, something happens, right? Something happens as we grow up. It's no longer, it's no longer acceptable for us to have that same free spirit, to be childlike with our trust and wonder, because the world says, as you grow up, you've got to mature. And so no longer do we run through our neighbor's yards playing cops and robbers. That would be viewed as being immature and really weird for an adult to be doing that. No longer do I wear that Christmas uh, tracksuit with the bright green colors uh, like Christmas because, I'll be honest, I'm a little concerned what people think about me now. Our childlike faith and our childlike trust is replaced with reason and knowledge and logic. And so we, we, as we grow and we mature, we believe, well, I can only put my faith and trust in things that I can understand and things that I can see. And so that wonder and that belief that God can do the impossible is replaced with the reality of what our limited abilities are. See, maturity is such an inter- interesting thing because we have these different ways of defining what maturity is all about. We say things like this, maturity is knowledge. The more knowledge you get, that proves your maturity. The more I learn, the more mature I am. We say maturity, maturity comes with our age. So the older I am, that means obviously I am more mature. We say maturity comes with our resilience. Look how much I've overcome, that proves I'm mature. Uh, uh, We think about this, I get knocked down, I get up again. You're never going to keep me down. That's what we believe our maturity comes from. We say our maturity comes from our self-confidence. This idea that I just believe I can do anything. I have my logic. I have my understanding. And that proves that I'm mature. We'll say maturity comes from our accomplishments, our success. Look at all that I've done. That proves I'm mature. Look how successful I am. Look how popular I am. Look how much money I have. Look how much money I have. Therefore, I'm mature, so everybody should look to me for answers because I've got it all figured out. But in terms of our faith, in terms of our Christian faith, what does it look like for us to actually be mature? What does maturity as a Christian actually look like? This past month, we started a series in the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, which is the seventh book of your New Testament. Um, it, was a, it was a book that was written by the Apostle Paul to a church, not unlike a church like ours, uh, a church in the city of Corinth. And, and Paul writes this church to address some issues that were happening within that church, to try and encourage them and, and point them on, on here's, here's, here's the wisdom for you to be a strong church. Here's how you experience the power of God in the church and in your lives. And it is a super fitting book for us to be looking at. We began talking last week, uh, Paul began talking about wisdom, about what the wisdom of the world looks like versus what the wisdom of God looks like. And today, Paul's going to continue talking on this theme about wisdom. He's going to also point back to what we talked about two weeks ago. He's going to talk about unity. And he's going to talk about where maturity and unity, where those two things come from. So today, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And again, the Corinthian culture, we have to remember where we were. The Corinthian church, their culture, they were influenced by by, 
uh, logic and rhetoric and abilities and accomplishments. They valued these sort of things. These were an intellectual group of people that valued knowledge and understanding and logic and, and these different things. And this is what they believed made them mature. They felt like, hey, we've got this understanding. We've got these abilities. Uh, maybe we're connected to certain people. And so in the Corinthian church, they felt that's what makes me mature. That's what defined maturity for them. But this, look how Paul addresses them. This is how Paul's going to address them. Verse 1, Paul says, brothers, he's talking to them as Christians. He's saying we're brothers and we're, we're the family of God. So he's talking to believers. He says, brothers, I cannot address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk because I could not feed you with solid food because you were not ready for it. Even now you are not ready. You are still of the flesh. See, this is where Paul is going to continue to contrast what he did last week. Remember last week we contrasted uh, the wisdom of God versus the wisdom of the world. And how some people were trusting not in the wisdom of God, they were trusting in the wisdom of the world. That's where they're trusting. And so Paul is saying, because you are trusting in the wisdom of God, I, because you're, excuse me, because you're trusting in the wisdom of the world, I can't give you like deep spiritual truth because you're not ready for it. You can't accept it. And why is that? Look, look what he says. He calls them, verse 1 and verse 3, he says, you are people of the flesh. You are still of the flesh. What this means is Paul <clears throat> is saying you are basing your life you are basing your maturity according to the wisdom of the world. You are basing what you believe makes you a mature person based on what the world says. The world values these things. They value wealth. They value accomplishment. They value knowledge and logic. And you are basing your Christian maturity on those things. And Paul says that is according to the flesh. That is the way the world calls you to live. And actually what that makes you in Christ, you are literally an infant. You're a baby. You haven't matured to the deeper things of God because you are still living your life according to the custom of the world. Paul is saying wisdom doesn't just come with age. Wisdom doesn't come the longer you follow Christ. In fact, Paul would say, you've been Christians for years. I planted this church four years ago. You've been following Christ for all this time, but you are still influenced by the world. So Paul says you are still like an infant in Christ. You're like a baby. How does Paul know that these people are immature? How, how, how does he have the right to call them babes in Christ? The answer, uh, the answer is, let me ask you this. How does the world know that we're Christians? What does Scripture say? What does Jesus say about how the world will know that we are Christians? That's right. Jesus says they will know we are Christians by how much theology we know. No, that's not what he says. He says they'll know we're Christians by how, how righteous we are and how, how good uh, morals we have. No, that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says they'll know we're Christians by how hypocritical. Oh, no, we won't go there. No, Jesus says they will know we are Christians by our love, by how we love one another, by how the love of God permeates how we relate to one another. That is how the world should know that we're Christians. But look what Paul says in verse 3. He says, while there's still jealousy and strife among you, you show you are still of the flesh and behaving in a worldly way. He says, you want to know how I know you are not mature? Because you are not allowing the love of God to permeate your relationships. You are allowing jealousy and strife to permeate those relationships. Paul's saying there's little love for one another in the church. 
There's not a, a love for one another. They're not engaging one another in that way. There's this competition. Who's better? Who's more mature? Hey, look, I'm, I'm closer to Christ than you are. So, so there's this jealousy and this competition about who's better, who's getting more attention. Paul says these are things that reveal there's some immaturity in your life. He says further, in this four, verse 4, he says this is a, a further proof of your immaturity. He says, one of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. He says, it's not, is that not being merely human? Remember when we talked two weeks ago, we talked about divisions in the church. We said the church, that was bro- the church in Corinth was broken to factions. Some people said, well, I'm, I'm of Paul. Others said, I'm of Apollos. Others said, I'm of Cephas. Others said, I'm, a, I'm of Christ. And Paul's saying that is still the issue today. Because, because what happens is you guys are saying, or the, the church in Corinth was saying, well, I'm of Apollos. I'm of Paul. Essentially saying, I'm more spiritual than you are. I'm more mature than you are because I follow Paul. And Paul is better than Apollos. Others would say, well, I'm of Apollos. And Apollos, he, he, he's, the, he, he's the key guy. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm more mature than you because I'm of Apollos. They're aligning, them, they're aligning themselves with a specific leader that they believed would prove their maturity. And maybe it's not just a leader they're attaching themselves to. Maybe it's the leader's way of ministry, their way of, of thinking, the way of doing ministry. So you've got this church. You've got this church in Corinth. And you've got people saying, well, well, I'm mature because I follow Paul. I'm mature because I follow Apollos. Listen, in our day and age, we talked about this two weeks ago, our church, I don't think we're divided over leaders. I don't think we're worried about, well, I'm of Jake and I'm of Kevin, I'm of, 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 of whoever it happens to be. Our culture is divided over other things. Our culture is divided over COVID. We've got maskers and non-maskers. We've got quarantiners and non-quarantiners. But the issue is the same. The root problem is the same in Corinth as it is in our day and age. Because the church allows maturity to come from the wrong source. That is what the issue was back then. Back in Corinth, the people were saying, my maturity comes because I follow Apollos or because I follow uh, Paul. Today, we say our maturity comes because I am masking, because I think it's the safest thing to do for everybody else. Others will say, my maturity comes because I'm free in Christ, and I don't have to do those things. The issue is the same thing, because we allow our maturity to be defined in the wrong source. It's according to the flesh, to the wisdom of the world. In fact, let me just pause right here, and let me ask you this question. Do you... When you look at your life, do you feel any jealousy in your life to other brothers and sisters in Christ? Is there any strife or anger or bitterness or hard feelings in your heart to other brothers and sisters in Christ? Because Paul's word to you today would say that is a gift from God if you can acknowledge those two things. Because Paul just told the Corinthian church, I know you are immature. I'm going to call you to repentance so you can grow. And how do I know you're immature? I know you're immature because these two things are present. Jealousy and strife. And if you and I, if we're looking and saying, man, there is some strife in my heart towards someone else, man, this is God's gift to you because God is saying this is an opportunity for you to mature. This is an opportunity for you to learn and to grow to become more like Christ. So that's the problem. 
The problem is the church at Corinth, they're allowing the maturity to come from the wrong source. So the question then becomes, well, what is maturity? What is the right source for maturity? What does Christian maturity actually look like? And he begins to answer that question in verse 5. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 5, Paul says, What then is Apollos? And what then is Paul? These are diagnostic questions. Diagnostic questions, trying to get the Christians in Corinth to do a little bit of soul-searching. Notice the question is, what is Apollos? And what is Paul? Not who is Apollos and not who is Paul. Because what Paul's trying to do, he's trying to take these leaders off the pedestal. He's trying to say, listen, it's not about a leader. A leader is not the answer. These leaders are not to be put on pedestals and to be worshipped. He's trying to depersonalize these leaders. He's trying to say, you put a misguided confidence in a Paul or Apollos. He says in verse 5, what are we? Paul and Apollos, what are we? We are servants through whom you have believed as the Lord has assigned. He says we are servants. That's what we are. That doesn't mean, when he says we're servants, that doesn't mean slaves. What that would mean is that would be like a deacon. That would be like a person who, who waits on a table. That'd be like a waiter. You think about this. He's saying, he's saying, me and Apollos, we are like God's waiters. We're simply the ones that are bringing you the food to the table. We didn't choose it. We didn't prepare it. Who did that? The answer is that's God's responsibility. What Paul is saying is as, as leaders, we're simply waiters. We're simply servers bringing you what God has already done. Growth comes from God alone. And more accurately, growth comes from the wisdom of God, which is Christ on the cross. We want to know what maturity is. Maturity comes as we, we, we allow the cross of Christ, the wisdom of God, to permeate our life. And he's going to use this farming analogy to make this point. He says in verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but who gave the growth? Oh, yeah, it was God who gave the growth. It wasn't Paul, it wasn't Apollos. God gave the growth. He says in verse 7, neither he who plants or waters is anything. It is only God who gives the growth. Paul is saying, listen, 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 church. Don't make it about me and don't make it about Apollos. We're just the hired hands. We're not the key here. The key, which is the same throughout the entire book of the Bible, it is the key throughout the entire book of 1 Corinthians. The key is God. The key is the cross of Christ. God has got to be what we build our lives around. Not a leader, not their theology, not the way they do the ministry. We've got to allow the cross of Christ to be the foundation of what we believe. In fact, Paul is going to transition from this farming analogy. Paul says, I planted and Apollos watered. He's going to transition to a building analogy. In fact, he says in verse 9, talking to the church, he says, you are God's field. You are God's building. How many of you guys ever have any experience building anything? We built a house a couple years ago, and one of the things that, was, uh, that we learned is the most important part of any building is the foundation. You've got to have a solid foundation. In fact, we, we found the best foundation guy in Yakima to build our foundation because we wanted the foundation of our house to be built right because everything's going to be built on top of it. You need a strong foundation. And this is what Paul says in verse 10. He says, I, I was like a skilled master builder. I see that word master builder, and I think about the Lego movie and being the master builder. Okay, it actually means that uh, that's like an architect or an engineer, a person who oversaw all the elements of the construction project. 
Paul says, I was like a, a master builder and I laid the foundation. I laid the foundation for you and other people built on it. No one would lay another foundation that which is already laid. And don't miss this. What is the foundation? What foundation did Paul build for the church? The foundation which is Christ Jesus. See, this is what we've got to grasp. As Christians, our, our faith and our life has got to have a foundation of Jesus Christ. It's got to be the cross of Christ. Our foundation has got to be the gospel of Christ. It can't be a leader. It can't be a theology. It can't be a church. It can't be, it can't be these things. It's got to be the cross of Christ. It's got to be the foundation for everything else in our life and in our faith. Because if we want to talk about what it means for us to have growth and maturity as Christians, growth and maturity comes as we anchor our life and our faith in the gospel. And the walls of our faith, the, the building of our faith, the roof of our faith, has got to be anchored to that foundation of the gospel of Christ. In fact, this is what Paul says in verse 12. He says, if anyone builds on a foundation with gold and silver and precious stones, he says, when you anchor your life and your actions on the gospel, you allow that to permeate how you interact. You are uh, loving people in Jesus Christ. Those things are like gold and silver and precious stones. That foundation, that building will be built to last. You'll be rewarded for that. But he says, but if you build on that foundation with hay and wood and straw, which means if we fail to anchor our hearts on the foundation of the gospel of Jesus, if we fail to build our anchor and build our foundation on Jesus Christ, if we fail to love one another as he's instructed us, if we, if we, if we build our foundation on the wisdom of the world, on our political causes, on our knowledge, on our consumerism, This is what he says, verse 13. Each one's work will be made manifest. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test what sort of work was done. He's saying what's going to happen is you're going to build your life and you're going to have a foundation. If your foundation is on the things of the world, the wisdom of the world, if your foundation is on your knowledge, it's on your politics, it's on your different things. What's going to happen is on the day of judgment, we're not talking about whether or not you're going to enter into heaven or not. This is a judgment of your uh, actions as a Christian, how you've lived your life. If you've built your foundation on anything else, it's going to come tumbling down. It's not going to last. And you're going to have nothing to present to God. But if your foundation is built on the gospel of Christ, on Jesus Christ, not a church, not his teachings, not, not a leader, but if your foundation is built on Jesus Christ alone, your building will be built of things like gold and silver and precious stones. And when it's tested by the fire to be left to stand, and Scripture says you will be rewarded by God on that day because how you have lived your life. Continues in verse 14, and it says, the one who survives will receive a reward. The ones whose life was built on the foundation of the gospel, they will receive a reward. And anyone's work, verse 15, anybody's work who's burned up will suffer loss, though, himself, though he himself will be saved. I want to be clear what he's talking about here. 
Jesus just, or Paul just said that if you have believed in Christ crucified for you, if you believed in the gospel of what Jesus accomplished for you on the cross, for your forgiveness of sin and eternal life, Paul's saying you don't have to fear condemnation. What he just said is, is your work will be burned up, though you yourself will not suffer loss. You yourself will be saved. Because here's what Jesus says in John chapter 5. John chapter 5 verse 24, Jesus says, anyone who hears my word and believes in him who has sent me, they have eternal life and will not come under judgment, but will pass from death to life. Listen, if we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we have this full assurance of our salvation, of our standing with God. When we face that judgment, see, he's going to look to us and say, you're my child, and I've, and, I, and I've paid the penalty for you to enter into heaven. But we're still going to recognize that God will still scrutinize how we live our daily life and our faithfulness or a lack of faithfulness to Christ Jesus. There's still going to be a reckoning for how we live our life and the foundation in which we build upon. Paul's going to speak now on behalf of, of unity. He says in verse 16, he says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells within you? Let me say later in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I believe in first Corinthians, Later in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul's going to say that uh, you individuals, us as people, we are God's temple and, and God's spirit resides in us. But here, that's not the case. Here Paul is saying you. He's talking about plural. He's talking about the church. Verse 16, God is saying you as a church, you are God's temple. You are God's temple where the spirit of God resides. We, as a church, as a body of Christ, we are God's temple. The Spirit of God rests on us. And that's a big deal. Because he says in verse 17, anyone who destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. See, that should be a strong warning to allowing disunity to occur in the body of Christ. Because if you, come against, if you come against the church, if you come against God's people, if you come against the unity of God's people, you're coming against God himself because we are his temple where he resides. You are coming against the spirit of God. That's such a stern warning for us. Such a stern warning where I think about the disunity in the church. We cannot allow the disunity in the church because we would be battling against the spirit of God himself. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to come against God. I don't want to come against what God wants to do. And that's what he's saying in verse 17. Anyone who destroys God's temple, anyone who destroys the church of God will suffer God's destruction on himself. Paul concludes this chapter and he's going to circle back to this idea about wisdom. The wisdom of God and the wisdom of the world. He's going to remind the Corinthian church about, uh, about the wisdom of God. And that's where growth and maturity comes from. And it's almost upside down to our world. Because our world says your wisdom and your maturity comes from your reasoning. It comes from your understanding. It comes from your accomplishments. It comes from your abilities. But God is saying it doesn't come from that. It comes from your life being centered on the cross of Christ. From you knowing God personally, and having a relationship with him. And that's what he says, that when you boast on your wisdom and your success and your understanding, you're going to suffer a hardship. But when you allow your life to boast in God and God alone, that shows your maturity. 
That shows your, your, your deep faith. That shows that you have grown and you're no longer a babe in Christ, but now you can mature in your faith by boasting not in yourself and your accomplishments, but by boasting in God and God alone. In fact, here's, here's what Paul's trying to teach us in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Here's what he's trying to say. And this is honestly, it's a little similar to what Paul has said in the last couple of, of chapters. Because I think Paul recognizes for us in the world today, for us, for, for those in Corinth, in Corinth, I think he recognizes how challenging it is for us to remember. I think he recognizes how difficult the pull of the world is, where we allow the world and its customs to influence how we live. And because of that, Paul has this challenge to us, and he's trying to say, listen, spiritual growth and maturity, unity amongst the body of, uh, of Christ is found not in our accomplishments. It's found not in our understanding, not in our, our wisdom. It's found in God alone. That if we want to be a mature person, if we want to experience unity in the church, if we want to grow in our, in our faith, it doesn't come from us going and achieving and trying to do and learn. It comes from us resting and building our foundation on the gospel of Christ. And we allow the cross of Christ to be the foundation for the way we live, for the way we interact with one another, for the, the reasons why we do what we do. So what does that mean for us today? What is, let me ask you this, what does spiritual maturity look like for you? What have you thought spiritual maturity is? And you say, well, spiritual maturity is because I've followed Jesus for such a long time. I, I, I've been a Christian for, for 20 years. That makes me a mature Christian. Maybe for you, we're saying, well, I grew up in church. I grew up in church. I've heard all the stories. I, I, know the sto- I know the Bible. So that makes me a mature Christian. Maybe for you, well, I've had these, uh, I, I've got the spiritual gift. I've got the spiritual gift that proves how mature I am. I've had these spiritual experiences. I've had these experiences that prove, man, I'm so tight with God and I'm so mature and strong in my faith. Maybe it's, well, I've got these right political views and so that shows how mature I am. Well, I follow, I follow this certain leader. This certain leader is amazing and so that proves, listen, I follow him and he's mature so that proves I'm mature too. What is spiritual look like? What does spiritual maturity look like to you? Here's the way I'd say this. When I think about us at Restoration Church, when I think about those of us who call Restoration Church home, I think about us as a family. That's what the church is. The church is a family. We're a family here at Restoration Church. I think about this. I think, what do I, what do I, want, what do I want us to be defined by? What do we want our, us as a church to be known for? What do you want the church to be known for? Do you want to be known as a church that has that incredibly handsome and funny pastor? You kind of got that. That's like my gift to you. You're welcome. Do you want to be known as a church full of knowledge? We've got people who just have deep knowledge and deep theology. Do you want to be known as a church that is small or big, whatever size we happen to be? Do you want us to be a church that is known for our, our worship, for how we gather on Sunday and the way that we do church? Those are not bad things. Those are good things for us to want to see. But when I think about us as a family, 
I want us to be defined by something different. I want us to be defined by the gospel of Jesus. I want us to be a people that are defined by allowing the gospel to impact the way that we live life together. I want us to be defined by the love of God that we've received from him. Not judgment. We've received love and peace and acceptance and forgiveness. I want that to be what we're known for, for how we love other people. Where it's not a matter of me judging you because you see things differently than I am. Because our maturity is not found in that. Our maturity is found in how we interact with one another. It's found in our love. Because as we've received God's love, we extend that love out to other people. That's where growth is. And we talk about the power of God and wanting the power of God in our life. It's not found in our knowledge. It's not found in what we do on our own. It's found in how we love one another. That's what I want us to be known for. A, a body of Christ, a family that generally loves one another. That as God has loved us, so we love others. In fact, always good to see what this looks like in real life. Here's a little picture of what this has looked like in my own life as I've considered, man, how do I become a mature Christian? How do I become a mature believer? When I became a Christian almost 20 years ago, I longed to be mature. I wanted to grow. I wanted to, to, to grow. Uh, and so I strived in my own to see, well, how can I achieve this? How can I grow and how can I be seen as being mature? And I did some things that I thought would produce this. In fact, I, I attended a church and the pastor used to stand up front and used to highlight certain people in the church. And, and for me, in my limited understanding, my thought was, well, if I, could just, if I could just catch the pastor's attention, if he could see all the good things I was doing, and then he would say, hey, everybody, look what Kevin did this week. I thought, that's maturity. And I began to strive to catch his attention. Volunteering in certain ways. Man, I was reading certain books. I was going to certain things just to try and get his attention because I thought that's what maturity was. I just wanted him to notice me. If he would just notice me and acknowledge me, then I thought, well, maybe I just need more knowledge. And I started reading all the books. Started getting these Bible classes and taking these Bible classes because, well, man, that's what maturity looks like. And I did all these things trying to find maturity. And I'll be honest, as I did all these things and tried to accomplish on my own, man, there was little change in my heart. My heart was, really wasn't changing. On the outside, I looked really good. On the outside, I looked the part of a Christian. But on the inside, my heart was still struggling with the things of the world. I became a hypocrite. I became the very thing that Christians are known for is hypocrisy. On the one side, I was trying to do all these Christian things to, to show how mature I was, but my heart wasn't changing at all. Loving God and loving others was not my motivation. And honest, it took me a couple years of following Jesus. It took me a couple years of being Christian for this to really begin to click because it almost seems too simple. It almost seems too simple that if I'm going to mature and grow in my faith, it comes from me coming back to the gospel again and again and again. It comes back to me saying, listen, this is the way that God feels about me. This is what God has done for me. And as I come back to that again and again and again and again, 
that permeates how I begin to change and how I begin to see other people. And pretty soon, I'm not trying to do these things to, to show how mature I am. Pretty soon, God begins to change my heart because I'm allowing him to take root. I'm allowing the things of God to, to, to be my foundation. I began to recognize that without Christ, I'm nothing. And that is when my heart and my life really began to change. In fact, this past week, Samantha and I were talking, and we're talking about how I shared last week how we went on this little tour where we're talking all these uh, parents who are a few steps ahead of us, and we're asking them, hey, what is your wisdom for raising good kids? Listen, if you've got kids, if you're about to have kids, man, that's a great thing to ask. Hey, how do we, what are some things you did well? What are some things you regret? And Samantha and I, we went on this thing. We're asking all these parents that are a few steps ahead of us, what did you do right? What did you do wrong? It was good. Samantha reminded me there was one year we were at camp at Lost Creek Village. We had taken kids from Madison House up to camp. And we asked, we asked a guy that was working in the kitchen. He was one of the cooks. He'd been a pastor for a long time, and he's cooking for us up at camp. And we asked him that question. What is the wisdom to raising good kids? And this is what he said. He said, the key is John chapter 15. Abide in Christ. We're like, okay, that's good, but no, really, like, like what, is, what are you supposed to do? What are the things you're supposed to do to raise good kids? Give us the wisdom here. And he said, the answer I just said is in John chapter 15. Abide in me, because apart from me, you can do nothing. Do you realize this is, the, this is what Paul is talking about? Very simply, we want to be mature. We want to experience God's power in our life. It's not from our knowledge. It's not from our right theology. It's not from our morality. It's from us abiding in him. From us allowing the gospel to take root in our lives and allowing that to be the foundation for everything that we do. That is the key to our growth and our maturity. Abide in me and I will abide in you. Because apart from me, you can do nothing. Oh, we can do things. We can try and bring about on our own. That doesn't accomplish much. But when we abide in him, that's when we get the power of God. One more point of application here, and I think it's kind of fitting for us today. Verse 5, Paul said, Me and Apollos, we were servants whom the Lord had assigned, we came to serve you. And it kind of carries this idea that, you know, service is kind of a part of the kingdom of God. As we've received love from God, we are then to, to love the people around us. So let me, let me just ask you this morning, how are you serving the body of Christ? How are you serving one another? You've got to be wise about this. But every one of us, is, if we call Restoration Church our home, if we claim to be a Christian, how are you serving one another? Who are you walking alongside in this season of life? Who are you investing in, encouraging? Who are you, who are you reaching out to? Are you serving in church? Engaging in what we're trying to accomplish here? Jake and I were talking this past week about how we are so thankful for how the Lord has continued to use our live stream. 
But you know what happens with our live stream? So much of our live stream depends on Jake and I. Man, opportunities for people to jump in and say, let me help with this. Let me help engage people in the live stream. Let me help do the, the, the setup and the sound and all those other things that go into it. Who are you serving in this season? Man, I love y'all. I love the privilege and honor of, of being your pastor. It is such a joy for me. And I'm praying for us at Restoration Church, I'm praying that we would love, another, would love one another passionately in this season. I'm praying that we would be a church that is known by our maturity, not by our theology, not by our good works, not by our wisdom. I'm praying that we'd be known as a place where we are rooted in the gospel of God. That the wisdom of God, the gospel of Christ, permeates everything that we do. How we love people, how we welcome people into the church, how we interact with one another. I'm praying that we'd be known as a people who dive deep into the gospel. And through that, we love God and love others in light of that.